The battle of wizards and warriors continues with iron swords. The evil wizard Malkil will take the shape of the earth, wind, water, and fire. Farewell! The fate of the world is in your hands! You're listening to the Piercing Wizard Podcast, and I'm your host, Ryan Willette. I'm a professional body piercer with 20 years experience. I travel around the world teaching technique and safety classes, and I'm a member of the Association of Professional Piercers. Listen in as I talk to my friends and colleagues about our industry so we can all stay sharp. Welcome back to the Piercing Wizard Podcast. Uh, We are live in Glasgow. Uh, I'm Ryan, and this is... This is Lola Slider, and you are listening to the Piercing Wizard Podcast. That's what I said. Last night, we did our latest webinar. Uh, I talked about navel piercing. You talked about uh, jewelry sizing issues, and I I think the the webinar went pretty well. How did you feel about it? I felt very confident about how it went. I think I managed to articulate the subject matter pretty well. People seem to follow along with it and understand it, which is always my primary concern is, am I making sense? And hopefully it made sense and people were able to take some useful pieces of information away. Yeah, I I feel the same way with navel piercing. Sometimes when you teach a class, it's so specific to the way that you do it. And it's maybe this, this method that you've developed all in your head and not out loud or on paper or something. So when you make a class that's very visual and, and auditory for people, sometimes it can be difficult to really kind of say like, this is the minutia, this is the difference between okay or really good, or this is the difference between maybe not ideal and, and maybe more ideal. So I think that you do really well to, to write a class and to share your ideas with, with other people. And I feel like I'm starting to get the hang of it myself. Well, I thought that the naval class went very well. Um... I think that it helps you have a lot of examples of different naval anatomy types um, that people are going to be coming into contact with on a regular basis at work. So being able to see those different builds and different sizes and shapes over and over and over again, not just as a one-off example, but example after example after example, I think that it's really good for people to see such a wealth of work that's been done and been downsized and been healed in some cases as well yeah i don't like to teach classes that are based entirely around like because i said so like i I like to base classes around like and and here's the the evidence here's the proof of like these methods work um and i know that jeff likes to use the word fundamentals quite a bit but it's really just that it's like if you can show lots of different anatomical examples and then a successful outcome uh, then people can start to put it together as like, well, what are, what are the fundamentals? What are the things that are shared across all of these different anatomy types? Um, with with your information, it's like, what's really like the goal is a, a balanced, healthy piercing that's just as healthy on the front as it is on the back instead of people paying uh, their, their full attention to just one side and not the other. So I think it can really help to, to share a perspective and get people thinking about what goes into a successful piercing. Yes. Um, So, speaking of successful piercings, I wanted to talk about surface piercings. Surface piercings were something that were pretty commonplace um, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. I think a lot of piercers that were pushing themselves, uh, successful surface piercing was a goal that they really wanted to check off on their list. Um, Yes, I can make these more commonplace everyday piercings heal well, 
but I also want other things that are a little bit less typical to, to heal well. So people focusing on genital piercing, people focusing on um, complex cartilage piercing, people focusing on surface piercing. So over a long career, uh, I've, I've had a lot of different thought processes on surface piercing, jewelry and marking and methods and aftercare and troubleshooting and all these different things. So I wanted to talk about some of the different things that would go into my surface piercing today. Um, what I've learned the hard way, the things that I've maybe done not so well and the things that I've gotten better at over time. And I wanted to get your perspective on surface piercings also. Um, do you offer surface piercings or is it not something you want to be doing in your studio these days? I don't offer surface piercings currently. Um, I don't offer uh, dermal anchors or surface anchors either. However, I would say that surface piercing would be something that I would be happy to do again. It's just not really on the cards for me right now. Um, in terms of um, my studio is primarily threadless and a lot of people when they're shopping with me for piercings of any nature, I think there's an expectation that the selection is going to be equally big regardless of what you're getting. Whereas with surface piercing, um, obviously we're kind of a bit limited to a flat disc or maybe just like a, a flat gem bezel to wear on the surface piercing. And um, I started when I opened doing surface piercings, I got in surface bar stock and it just wasn't very popular because I didn't have that extensive 14 gauge internally threaded range that people are often looking for now. Um, and the mentality is I'm getting this piercing done. I'm not going to want to change it. So I want it done with something really nice. And that's just not something I can do because surface piercing isn't a big enough market share for me, if you like, to make it uh, viable to invest in all of this ornamental 14 gauge internally threaded stock. So it just kind of got less and less. And eventually I, I ran out of stock and didn't get more and just kind of stopped offering it. And I'm very rarely asked about it. So um, I'm not offering it currently. I wouldn't be against offering it again at some point, but I'm not refusing to offer it in the way that I refuse to do surface anchors or dermal anchors anymore. Uh, I, I don't really have a wide selection of ornamental ends or anything for surface bars, but I can totally see the investment as far as the shafts go because you have to get so specific about the jewelry. It's mm -hmm. not something like a helix or a nostril or an earlobe where you can have, let's say, a variety of 10 or 100 different fronts, different tops, different ornamental pieces, and then you can have a small selection of backings and just use whatever's most appropriate. Like almost all of the attention, almost all of the focus, not 100%, but the majority of it has to go into the, the surface bar. And you have to size those really specifically. There are different um, there are different designs like round bar versus flat bar. The end pieces are important too, but I think that my, my jewelry selection for surface bars is, is focusing mostly on the part that's under the surface. Mm. Um, and I, I get that a, a lot of piercers these days, they have to be a little bit more cautious about where they invest their money, trying to invest it in something that will have a, a higher likelihood of a return, because that's where you pay your bills. Mm. Uh, but for me, I, I've I've always had surface jewelry, so I've always kind of kept up at least some level of priority. I'm, I'm sure there have been years uh, where I haven't done a single surface piercing. Over the last 20, 25 years of, of business, 
there have definitely been years in there where I've done a bunch of surface bars and maybe no surface bars. So um, these days it's, it's a little treat. It's a special little treat when I get asked to do one, but it's really not something that I'm trying to promote because I, I think that today's modern client, they're not, they're not so much interested in, in surface bars or maybe even aware of them. Uh, I think that you're right in saying that um, the modern client is potentially not as aware of surface piercing, but also clients who are aware of surface piercing are maybe not as aware of, uh, or maybe not as accepting of the risks inherent in surface piercing. And that's another thing. I mean, as we mentioned on previous episodes, I don't do dermal anchors at all anymore for that reason. Um, but also with surface anchors, um, we have to acknowledge that even if we're using the best techniques and the best jewelry, there is a risk of failure and it's substantial. It's not, it's not a small risk, it's a substantial risk. What we're doing is that we're eliminating as many causes of um, inflammation and irritation as possible, but that's it. That's as much as we can do. Um, for a piercing that's two, at the most, three millimeters deep, maybe in some extreme cases, maybe even a little more um, deep into the body, that's nothing in terms of tissue that the body is willing to sacrifice to heal. And so the risk of rejection is is there, even if it's done amazingly by a great piercer with um, world-class quality jewelry. And I think that it's harder than ever to get people to believe that, which sounds silly, but a, a trend that I've noticed and something that I've talked about often on my social media and probably the podcast as well, it all bleeds together a little bit in my mind, is that people will shop for the answer they want, not for the answer that's accurate and true. So if they can find a piercer that'll say, yeah, this has a really good success rate, that's the answer they're gonna go with, even if it's not necessarily a truthful answer. Yeah, um, informed consent is an issue that we've brought up on the show multiple times, especially recently. Um, but when it comes to surface piercings, it's a really difficult conversation because sometimes people don't believe that they could be the negative side of the percentile. So um, I remember a really good scenario. A woman came in. Here's the thing is a lot of time when people self book on my website, there is a specific option for surface piercing. But if they don't choose to include notes about the, the specific body location or the look they're going for, I might not really know what they're going for until they come in and we start to have the consultation. This woman came in, she wanted to get uh, a horizontal eyebrow piercing. So I had to have the whole conversation with her um, during her appointment, during her visit. And that only gives me probably a limited amount of time. If, if I have, let's say, a 45-minute uh, block of time for a surface piercing, I have plenty of time to sterilize jewelry in the statum. I have plenty of time to pierce. I have some time to go over jewelry and consultations. But realistically, I only have maybe 15 to 20 minutes for the consultation portion of an appointment block that long. Um, a lot of that time is evaluation, looking at the person's face, hey, make some facial expressions for me. Sometimes it's like an immediate disqualification of like, well, you have these crease lines, these wrinkles, you have these other factors where I just don't think you have a significant chance of success. So let's wave it off. Sometimes there are the people where it's like, everything looks pretty good, but still I need to tell you about what could go wrong, even if I do this to the best of my ability. And that was the conversation with this woman. I like this placement. 
Uh, do you like this placement? Okay, we can do that. Here are the jewelry options I'm comfortable giving you today. Uh, pretty conservative, pretty limited there. But still, even if I'm doing this to the best of my ability, even if I'm doing this with the technique that I think will give you the highest success rate, as you said, it's it's a very shallow surface piercing. It's not a natural ridge of tissue like a vertical eyebrow would be. It's not like a standard fold of tissue, something that the body might have a little bit of an easier time healing. An anatomical feature like a nipple or a navel, those are usually pretty substantial. You have a lot of healthy tissue above the jewelry, healthy blood flow, and a higher likelihood of success. And if you have trouble with it, um, you have a, a, a bigger chance of being able to turn things around with quality aftercare, with, with good troubleshooting, um, with, with checkups down, down the line. With surface piercing, less tissue means less blood flow, means that problems, um, even small problems, can just be the end of the piercing. Sometimes clients will get in touch with you and say, I'm having a problem, can we course correct this? Sometimes they wait too long because they think like, well, I can fix this, I can turn this around, um, I can avoid this problem, and it will just naturally clear up like any other piercing. But sometimes you really have to do this hyper-specific troubleshooting, sometimes you have to maybe do a jewelry change or some sort of other course correction, uh, and then maybe still, it's too late. The body just doesn't want to heal it, there isn't enough healthy blood flow, so the body decides to just reject. And I like to tell clients all that, during the consultation process and say, even if it's done really well, even if it looks perfect for a photo the, the day that we do it, a month from now, six months from now, you might have like some rather small, you know, kind of insignificant issue be the, the death of the piercing. And unfortunately, that's what happened with this woman. She had an issue, she checked up with me, and I was like, well, that's not looking great. Um, you can try this, but it's not likely to completely get you back to, to perfect and happy and healthy. If you start to notice the problem gets worse, you really just need to decide to, to pull it before you have the potential for like a massive rejection scar. But she decided that she wanted to keep it. The problem got worse. Um, she, she, like a lot of people, just didn't want to kind of admit that the problem was getting worse or didn't want to lose the piercing that she paid money for, that she really wanted. Um, waited a while and started to reject and then she was left with with a scar from it but those were all things that we went over initially in the consultation but she was still really disappointed in the end the day that we had to pull the surface bar she was just really disappointed and it's like yes you were you were informed yes you consented to it but you were that percentile where it just didn't work out and sometimes people do have a really hard time swallowing that pill right nobody thinks it's going to be them yeah and that, I think, is definitely um, a trait that is more common now. I don't think it's a trait that has always been, or at least certainly not in my part of the world, because going back to when I was maybe 17, I think, which 15 years ago, um, I had a, my first experience with surface piercing was getting a surface piercing, and um, it was on my arm, and it was just a... Well, what could go wrong? It was a just a clamp and pierce... And it was a straight PTFE bar with five mil beads. And um, I think it lasted about two months, rejected, left a big scar. Um, it was as if it w wasn't even a thought that something had gone wrong or that things hadn't worked out. It was just something that everybody accepted as these are temporary piercings. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just one of those things. Maybe they'll heal, maybe they won't. They probably won't. But you just wanted to get different things done and try different things. Never in a million years would somebody have gone back to this place and gone, 
my thing, you know, this thing grew out that you did because it, it would have been, the notion of that would have been absurd. And I'm not saying that things were better then by any means at all, but I don't know, it's, it's again, it comes back to what I was saying about people will shop for the opinion that they want on social media, whereas that never used to be quite as intensive as it is now. And when it comes to surface piercings in particular, I do have a little bit of an issue with when you take the credit for a surface piercing healing well, I mean, how much of the credit can you take for that? And how much of the, the blame do you then take when something doesn't work out? And I think that it's it's a little bit dangerous sometimes to take the credit and say, I'm amazing at surface piercing. They all, all my surface piercings go on to heal because it makes me wonder, well, how much of it is you and how much of it is just the, the client's body wanting to heal? And the reason I think that is because the first surface piercings that I did as a professional piercer, and I went through clamp and cannula, I went through, then it was punch and taper, punch and taper for years and years. I did so many punch and taper piercings, which I actually really loved to do at the time. Then it was wound shaping. I saw a Luis Garcia class on wound shaping, totally changed my outlook. Then I did wound shaping. Then I tried punch and wound shaping or, you know, punch and needle as it's called. So I went through a, a lot of different techniques and tried a lot of things. And funnily enough, one of the most well-heeled surface piercings I ever saw was on a hip. And oh my God, can we just take a moment to appreciate what the fuck was hip, what the fuck was hip piercing? What the fuck was hip piercing, Ryan? I don't know. But like one of the only, one of the best fully healed piercings I saw was a clamp and cannula hip piercing that I did over a year old. I have a photo of it. This would have been from well over 10 years ago. And that jewelry by today's standards was trash. The technique, trash. And yet there it is. And similarly, when I was around the, the same age as a teenager again, maybe about 18, there was a guy in our uh, kind of friend circle, dickhead, not important, but in our friend circle who had um, a nape piercing. And I'm not kidding when I say this thing was about two inches long. It was plastic. I think it was PTFE, but I can't be sure. It had black balls on the end. It had been It had been bent into the shape of a staple bar, I think with a lighter and it was years old and fully healed. This thing was at least two, three years old and it looked perfectly healed. And that was, it, it was just hot garbage, just awful, awful jewelry. And yet sometimes the body's just like, fuck you, I'm healing this. Mm-hmm. So I, I do definitely take it with a pinch of salt when someone says like, you know, my, my surface work gets amazing results because I wonder, do you take the credit as boldly when things don't work out and how much can you know that it's you you know what I mean and that's not me doubting how well other people do their work that's me saying I've seen some atrocious things heal and you can't take the credit for it you just can't it's it's one of those things where it's so out of our control well you you can certainly take the credit for setting people up for success yeah very much so but there is the flip side of that coin like I, I'm not big on percentages because it's it's going to vary so much. But like just to, to paint in broad strokes, you know, if it's something like six out of ten might heal, but that means four out of ten definitely won't, and will just leave a rejection scar unless they're taken out pretty early on. But any piercer who's done a lot of surface work, they've seen a large amount of stuff that they've done fail, and I, I definitely fall into that category. So. I have a hard time in today's marketplace when piercers only talk about 
the best of their ability and they don't talk realistically about when even the best of their ability isn't enough to make something heal really well because you can't you can't guarantee something once the person walks out the door they can they can steer it in a direction you know they can take the best care possible they can avoid snags and problems and and stress on the piercing but still uh, a difficult to heal piercing is difficult to heal for a reason and sometimes that means that it will fail so Recently, I put out a poll, uh, or like a, a, a give me your questions kind of a thing for the podcast. One of the subjects on there, which I think we'll talk about in maybe a future a future episode, um, said something along the lines of, well, how do you report a hack shop? And I think that that's a very slippery slope. I, I think that a lot of piercers know shops where they maybe do, um, they maybe have unsafe practices. Uh, their sterilization, their disinfection, whatever, might leave a, a lot to be desired, but when it comes down to like a piercing rejecting or a piercing being very stubborn, being chronically irritated, being whatever, that's not really the same thing. And what I really don't like to see is when, let's say somebody goes to shop A, gets something done, and even if it's a really well done piercing, good jewelry, good aftercare, good blah, 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 then they go to another shop because they're having a problem and they maybe don't want to go back to shop A. So they go to shop B. And then shop B is like, well, obviously shop A was a hack and they didn't know what they were doing and blah, blah, blah. So I know that I've been shop A and shop B at different points in my mm-hmm. career. I know that there are surface piercings that I performed with, as you said, world-class jewelry mm-hmm. techniques to the best of my ability, but still the piercing didn't heal well. So they, there have been times where I'm sure clients of mine have gone to other studios. They've seen work that healed very poorly and they've said, oh yeah, you know, Ryan at Precision did this. Um, and I would just hope that there aren't shops out there that would be like, well, obviously he's a hack because he did something differently than we do and that would never happen to me and I can do no wrong and et cetera, et cetera. So it's this slippery slope where we do need to take credit for our failures, um, just as we're really good at taking credit for our successes. Um, I rarely see piercers post the negative side effects of surface piercings. Nobody ever has an Instagram post that's like, hey, check out this rejection scar from a piercing I did. Nobody does that. Um, I think that there was an age on the internet, like around that BME time, where people would say, here's my piercing, here's the process of healing, and sometimes the end of that process is, it didn't heal well, so I pulled it. And I think people in that era of of people who got piercings because it, it meant something to them. I think they got it. I think they got both sides of the coin. Now I do worry that the modern piercing client only sees TikToks about, hey, this is the perfect world, but not all piercings exist in a perfect world. So I would like piercers to kind of set a realistic expectation, whether they're the one that deals with the troubleshooting or whether someone else deals with the troubleshooting. Like your informed consent should include it can go wrong. This is what rejection is. This is a rejection scar. If you start to notice problems, please get in touch with me. But sometimes you have to have that hard conversation with someone to say like, even though, yes, you paid your money and I I think I gave you a really quality service with quality jewelry, it's just not healing well. And I'm sorry, but my my advice would be to to take it out. Um, it's, It's a tough conversation to have with people, but you have to be honest about it. I mean, if I was to offer surface piercing again, I would offer it and stipulate that in all probability, the likelihood is that this will be temporary. I wouldn't even frame it as a risk. I, I don't even frame it as a risk and haven't done for years at this point. And I think it, it's because I went through 
years of trial and error and doing different things, getting better and better jewellery, getting better and better technique. But the rejections didn't seem to go down dramatically. Maybe things were a little bit better, I don't know. Um, but there wasn't like this massive turnaround in terms of things rejecting or healing badly. And so I think I kind of just started to feel like, well, you know, surface piercings, they are always going to be a roll of the dice. And like you say, all we can do is eliminate all the risk factors we're in control of. The client can eliminate their risk factors by taking good care of the piercing, um, but it still might fail. So my comfort level at this point is framing it like, I mean, how many piercers do we know that have had surface piercings taken in and out and done over and over and over again? Yeah. And that's the definition of madness, isn't it? Right. Just keep doing the same thing over and over again, thinking maybe this time it'll heal. And it's it's very human to want to do that with something that makes us feel good in a certain way and think, maybe if I can heal this, maybe it's the same energy as when people cut their bangs, you know? They're like, <laughs> if I can control this somehow, I can, I can, I can, turn, it I can turn it all around. So like, I, I get it completely. But I think that for me, like the only way to push back against that that trend of information shopping is to be as straightforward and honest and because people will push back and say, well, what if I do this? And, you know, they're in the bargaining stage. What if I do this and that? And, and I'm like, it, it's still there's a, still a chance that it might come out and I don't want to take your money. When, with you thinking that there's a way for us to avoid this. We can do the best that we can, but enjoy yourself with it. Take lots of pictures with it, you know, like have fun with it. But then if it starts to turn, I would make the decision to retire it, to limit scarring and keep it a positive experience and just frame it that way. Yeah. Like that, that makes me feel more comfortable. Just um, put, put in the stages of grief in your aftercare yep. pamphlet. <laughs> Absolutely. The stages of grief for losing. So you're losing your piercing. Well, all right. So I don't want to focus on. We we have a bit of a tendency to veer towards the the doom what? scenarios, but I I want to focus on some of those things, like you said, some of the factors that you can try to uh, work out. Where it's like, well, let's eliminate this risk, let's eliminate this risk, or at least minimize them. And I have a new video available at Patreon.com/slash RyanPBA showing a surface piercing, showing a, a sternum, kind of a. A higher chest, not exactly a cleavage piercing because I don't do piercings within the cleavage line, but a sternum piercing, um, and I did it with a, a punch-in piercing needle. Chamfer and blade needle is the terminology that I use because it's not a dermal punch, it's a chamfer needle for body piercing. Um, and rather than using a taper to separate across, I used a, a, a blade needle. So um, chamfer and blade needle is the way that I define it, but it can be similar to something like a punch and taper method, but slightly different. But I've got a video about that, showing the marking, showing the piercing procedure, talking about a couple other factors related to the jewelry and all that stuff. So you can go ahead and check that out at, at patreon.com slash RyanPBA. But I wanted to focus on some of those things that can go into increasing the chances of success. Mm. There's there's certainly no guarantee, but the biggest thing for me would probably be the body location. Because as you said, like you did hip piercings mm, and it's like- hip surface piercings. I did them too. Like I did them too in the era of like really low-waisted Britney Spears jeans kind of a thing. Surface bars and then eventually surface anchors. I did all kinds of stuff on the face, the nape of the neck. Uh, the upper back between the shoulder blades, clavicles, like collarbone the, surface piercings the all the time. Like oh, like a, vampire bites. Oh, yeah. I was so scared doing yeah. that. It's an awful idea. Yeah. It turned out okay, but yeah, I think that was probably one of the craziest places for me. And I did the like the pubic pad, pubic mound yeah. as well. I've tried, I've tried all of those. I've tried every placement 
that I would see some other piercer posting on BME or in a magazine at the time. And I was like, well, if they can do it, I can do it. But a lot of times the, the pictures that they were posting, again, they were fresh. They weren't a year old or whatever, because a lot of times by a year, it was just a rejection scar. It wasn't a piercing. Uh, over time, I dropped lots of different areas. Some of the some of the more obvious stuff would be like arms. As a good example, I dropped arms pretty quickly. I dropped hip piercings pretty quickly. I dropped between the shoulder blades pretty quickly. Uh, I dropped clavicles probably a little bit later than I should because everybody was just asking for them at the time, but anybody who wears a bra, they're pretty much doomed to failure for healing anything around the clavicles, but also anybody who likes to move their arms probably not a, a great placement for a surface bar healing and not to say that it's impossible because there's always going to be somebody out there who's like well I healed this but it's like some of those people are like those fantastic rare examples like the hip piercings for you one of the rarest examples for me and I apologize to say this out loud but someone that I dated previously when I was a teenager I'll kill him when I was a teenager <laughs> in the 1990s I did three surface piercings between their shoulder blades with externally threaded steel curved barbells. And it was like, okay, I'm a 17 year old. I just want to try something random. Um, what can we do? Then uh, we stopped dating. They went their way. I went that my way. And then Did you stopped dating. So you're not still dating. I'm not currently okay. dating them. Yes. So uh, I saw them years later, probably 10 years later. And we had this like joking moment where I was like, oh, ha ha ha. Remember when I did those surface bar piercings on your back? And she was like, oh, these ones? And she turned around and she still had them. She still had them 10 years later with the exact jewelry that I pierced them with. Um, they were way too long and they were flopping around, but they were just steel external thread curved barbells, um, three between her shoulder blades. And it was like, oh my God. Like, so you can't hold up something like that as an example to be like, well, clearly it can be done and it's like yes people could probably pierce the bottom of their foot and maybe some of those would heal but it doesn't mean that it's a good idea to to offer it in your studio mm -hmm. so lots of areas that i've dropped and essentially all i'm going to do now for a surface piercing i'll do the nape of the neck i'll do um, certain facial piercings like a you know some people call it a vertical tragus some people call it a sideburn piercing um, but that basically like side of the face near the ear kind of a placement I'll do uh, a horizontal eyebrow. I'll do a vertical bridge type placement, which is more onto the forehead. It's not really on the bridge of the nose, but still referred to as a vertical bridge most of the time. And that's kind of it. Maybe I'll do the center sternum piercings, but I, you know, again, a long consultation process, but I'm not doing uh, a horizontal piercing below the navel like I used to. I'm not trying to do anything around the pubic pad like I used to. There are lots of surface piercings where I, I've tried them and they had such a high likelihood of failure that I just said like why bother trying. If you only have a maybe a 2 in 10 chance that's not really enough for me to feel comfortable trying it. So do you have any thoughts on like if you let's say budget and jewelry and stuff wasn't an issue like where would you feel comfortable trying a surface piercing? I'm I'm kind of similar to you in that I would say uh, the face is quite a comfortable area for surface piercing for me horizontal eyebrow maybe kind of high cheek um, vertical bridge that oh kind yeah of like thing. anti eyebrow kind of placement I'll do that too those kind of things you know um, um as a really quick shout out to Zach Boyer one of my favorite human beings. Um, my very first 
private seminar that I ever did was in Maryland. And um, that was at the time where I was still trying to do live piercing in seminars. I don't currently, but I did a little anti-eyebrow piercing on Zach. It's still in today, healed beautifully. I really love it. And it's just one of those things where it's like, it keeps hope alive. Whenever I see Zach and I see that surface piercing, I'm like, I should try doing more surface piercings because it healed so beautifully on him. Yeah. But I think lifestyle plays such a significant factor because as you've noticed before, in the UK, folks wear a lot of makeup every. <laughs> no <laughs> need to laugh. An understatement. Every day. When I'm, just, I'm not just talking about on night out. I'm talking about the casual daily. I'm just going to Tesco. I'm just going, you know, to the supermarket or to work kind of makeup. It's like heavy, heavy. Reminds me of the makeup gun from The Simpsons. Right. So, and uh, and so that's going to wreak havoc with facial piercings of all kinds, and it does. And, uh, and that's no different with surface piercings as well. Trying to get clients to understand that even though a piercing is healed, it's still going to become red and irritated when it becomes impacted with makeup and oil. Um, and there's probably never going to really be a time in life where that's not the case. For me, the thing with piercings on the chest are breasts are a huge issue. The majority of clients that I see are people with breasts and unless your breasts are very, very tiny, they're absolutely gonna have an effect on how your skin moves when you lie down, your breasts shift up, um, when you stand up, they pull down. And if you look closely, you can often see like the lines of tissue actually being pulled in different directions, even on somebody that's not particularly heavy chested. And that is a weight and a pressure on a surface piercing that you really can't get rid of unless it's gonna be supported somehow with clothing or something like that 24 hours a day there are going to be times that the breast tissue is pulling the piercings in different directions and it's kind of not really anything you can do about it to stop that from happening. I mean, you can try and place the piercing on an area of minimal movement, but breasts have a tendency to move around a fair amount. There's something that I talk about in um, the video, which is available now on patreon.com slash ryanpba, uh, that I talk about and it's really just have someone bring their arms together have them create that cleavage line, make some reference marks there, because oftentimes that's gonna go much higher on the chest than you would expect. Especially if someone has larger breasts, um, their cleavage line can be really significant. And there was a point where people loved to say like, you know, put a surface piercing right in my cleavage line, put a surface anchor right in my cleavage line, like how many piercers out there have done tons of like little sparkly gems around the cleavage, but then like a month later, six months later, they're just doomed to failure. So you really do have to think about that stuff. All those different body locations too, another complicating factor is the jewelry because there are there's two main splits in the, the family tree of surface bars for me. And notice how we're talking about surface bar piercing, we're not talking about curved barbell piercing. Um, I would just urge you like, if you're curious about surface piercing, don't even waste your time trying to do them with curved barbells. Again, there's that kind of adage of like, well, look at this example, it did heal with a curved barbell. It's like, yes, okay, but something can heal, you know, like in those rare unicorn scenarios, but for a higher likelihood, it's gonna be surface bars. When it comes to surface bars, you're gonna have round bars, you're gonna have flat bars. And um, an important thing to, to think about, and I'll give Luis Garcia 100% of the credit on this because he really changed my mentality of why I would select one versus the other. For a long time, the, the best quality surface bars were really only round options. Good quality surface bars are difficult to make. There's a, a short list of companies that can make them really well, especially in internally threaded with a, a really low um, stem rise. So for a long time, round bars were all you had. So maybe they would work well in some areas, maybe they wouldn't work so well in other areas. 
And some of those really thin-skinned areas, like the sternum is a perfect example, people started to develop a flat bottom surface bar. Um, but then uh, as like new things come in, sometimes people are like, well, if there's a small improvement with this one thing in this one location, I'm just gonna do all of that for everything because it'll obviously give a huge improvement for everything. But if you're using a flat bottom surface bar in something like a nape piercing, something horizontal, and especially something that can fold and have pressure put against it, like when you lean your head back and you had a flat bottom surface bar, that motion of putting your head back and creating that, that bending pressure can almost kind of pinch your skin across the edges of that flat surface bar. And it can make it fussy. Uh, it can make it go through these cycles of like irritation and then getting clear and then irritation and then getting clear. Um, so when it's a horizontal piercing on an area with movement, like a nape is a perfect example. I think that's a, a perfect example of where a round surface bar can give you the highest success rate. But then other areas that are um, thin-skinned, areas that don't move very well, and areas that are a little bit more vertical, something like that vertical bridge placement, the sideburn piercing, the vertical tragus placement, the sternum placement, flat bottom bars are, are great there. But they can both have their, their pluses and minuses, but like really think out those things as to which one would be the, the best option for the location. Um, for end pieces, do you wanna talk about maybe what would, would be a good idea versus a bad idea, like height or like, would you ever put like a, a ball or like a prong setting on a surface bar? I mean, when piercings are healed and people maybe want to wear things for ornamental short-term purposes, you know, I think that there's nothing terribly wrong with that any more so than wearing something impractical on another part of the body. But for an initial surface piercing, I would go with um, a flat-bottomed piece of jewellery, a low-profile piece of jewellery only. My opinion, though, is that it's quite important to make sure clients understand that jewellery that's asymmetric has a good chance of not aligning in exactly the orientation that they wish. Like a star or an yeah, anchor or something that's not round. There are a few things that I've seen where it's a design, it's screwed on, but you can see that when it's really screwed on tight, it veers to the left or it veers to the right. And a lot of the time people will position it in a certain way for a photograph. And I think the same is also true with like tears and filtrum piercings, you know, teardrop shapes and sure. filtrums. Or they, surface anchors. They spin like crazy. Um, so again, I think it's just being realistic and taking the social media imagery away a little bit from the practical work that you're doing so clients understand yes it can look like this for a picture but you're not a living picture walking up and down the street you're a person who's going to move and sometimes things aren't going to orientate exactly how you would want them to because it's it's just life um, so i think the main thing is if somebody wants to have a surface piercing done speak to them a bit about what their jewelry preferences are because i have had one or two situations in the past where someone has had something done and then had the conversation well this is the thing i ultimately wanted to wear and now you're telling me that it's probably not going to orientate perfectly and at that point there's not really a lot that you can do I, again, I'm pretty conservative for jewelry, uh, but a lot of that is because there were points where I was less conservative. I would take more chances on jewelry and I got really poor healing results. So now I'll basically limit a surface piercing to either a plain disc or um, a, a gem disc or a cabochon, something really low profile, really flat. If it's something like a ball, the space with that rounded bottom can allow the piercing to rock back and forth a little bit, which can be problematic for healing. But as Lola said, like once a piercing heals, once a piercing is matured where it's a few years healed, 
and people want to try some different shapes, you know, that that's that's up to them what they want to do. Uh, one good example that I can think of is I uh, I did this this nape project. I was at a, a tattoo convention in Boston, and uh, a woman said, I want five surface piercings on the back of my neck. She didn't have a lot of creases or anything on the back of her neck. She had a lot of like flat space. And I was like, you know what? You like, you actually look like a viable candidate for this. I did the five piercings and I did them all with surface bars, with disc ends, because I thought that that was the most appropriate for healing. And it was, it healed beautifully. She checked in with me with some photos. Um, but then, you know, we kind of lost contact. I went back to that convention, I think three years three years on, three years after I pierced her. And then she showed up there and she's like, oh yeah, check out these surface piercings you did on me three years ago and they healed great. And she had switched all the disc ends over to ball ends. And the jewelry was a little bit more floppy at that point. And it was, it could rock back and forth and it can move a little bit. And it's like, well, you're, you know, you're lucky these piercings were so well healed and, and matured because like now they can do that and it won't ruin the piercings. Um, but I, I posted the picture online and I got eaten alive by an internet commentator uh, because they just didn't read the line that said these are multi-year healed piercings and they were like oh you should never do a surface bar with a ball and it's like well yes I'll agree but these are fully healed the client changed them but it's one of those things where there is a big difference between uh, new and healed so if somebody wants uh, an asymmetrical end or if they want a ball or if they want a prong or if they want something maybe a little bit more elaborate uh, just like with a lot of other piercings, we could have conversations after it's healed, but I want you have to have the best chance possible of it healing. So let's let's just do something low profile and flat, something that can give you a higher chance of it healing well. When I started doing surface piercings, I don't want to say good, but I'll say better than clamp and cannula. I moved on from that in my early 20s and started doing um, punch and taper piercings was the follow-on from me from using clamps. So I'm punching the the nape, for example, and then I'm using a taper to separate the skin, which feels amazing. You know, like if you've never done that before, you, you don't think in your head how well it's gonna work and then you do it and you're like, oh my God, I'm doing it and it's working. When I started doing uh, surface piercings this way, uh, we didn't have, and when I say we, I mean people in the UK, didn't have a supplier making uh, threaded tapers. You couldn't get threaded tapers. You could just about get the internally threaded um, staple bar, surface bar, you could get that. And that's what I was using. So I could get the flat discs on there. And I thought I was so fancy, you know, like I was this studio that was, you know, at this point in time doing the internally threaded surface piercing with the flat discs. And it, I felt so posh. And uh, but the thing is we didn't have any, um, threaded tapers to connect a taper to the jewelry so and obviously for something like an ape you're not wanting to just try and you know follow a follow a, a taper through um so what i would do is i would uh use uh like a 16 gauge taper to do the skin separation then i would follow that with a 14 gauge taper just end to end you know back to back so now i've got like a little bit more size then i would take the plastic sheath off a cannula dis you know disregard the cannula needle but steal the, the actual plastic sheath and then you would slide that along the the second taper into place and then you could remove the taper and then put the the edge of the jewelry all the way inside the cannula you would push it in there till it kind of jammed and then you could kind of pull everything back through with the cannula that's not overly complicated and, at all but the thing is we didn't have a threaded there weren't sure. any threaded tapers yeah. so like we had to kind of like frankenstein this 
technique together of trying to get the good jewellery in the good piercing without threaded tapers and it's something that comes up in the workshops that we do where it's I don't use tapers for 99% of the piercings that I do or pins or attachment things and it's just because I learned without them because we didn't have them in the country yeah <laughs> at all anywhere there are there are lots of piercers these days who have never done a just needle and jewelry same size transfer um, and you know, for better or worse, like maybe you don't have to anymore because you have so many options right. with tools and disposable tools. If I'd have had the and... options, I would have been using them, but we didn't at the time. Yeah, I'm I'm proud that I can still chase jewelry. Um, I think what I was doing before I had threaded tapers, like they were available, but they were just so expensive that it was like I can't afford to spend that much money on a taper. So all I was doing is probably like a 12 gauge needle and then just putting the 14 gauge jewelry in the back of a 12 gauge needle, but then it would just be pissing blood when I did it. So um, improved over time. Um, I think what I would like to kind of start to maybe wind it down a little bit for the conversation, but I want to talk about some of the kind of like that, like how you did surface piercings before and how you probably wouldn't be doing them now, but I did a couple of things along the way that I would like to point out as just like a haha moment um, when I first opened my own studio that I owned uh, in in 2000 when I was doing surface bar pier uh, surface piercings then uh, I couldn't afford surface bars because they were crazy expensive for me at the time so I was buying externally threaded PTFE plastic barbells and then I was just holding them under hot water until they got soft and then I would bend them into a surface bar shape and then put them under cold water to try to retain the shape and it's like it it wasn't really working, but I was doing like two inch long vertical chest piercings with those and all kinds of stuff. And like some of them were healing, but it was a very small minority of them healing. Then I started to get comfortable with round bar um, surface bars. Then I started to get the flat bottom surface bars. And, you know, now I've kind of gotten settled into my, my methods now. Um, but like there were lots of steps along the way curve barbells, plastic barbells, all kinds of stuff that I would never ever want to see somebody doing today. So if you're going to like kind of start to dip your toes into surface bars, take some classes, take a full class or try to shadow with somebody. Luis Garcia does a really good successful um, surface bar class. I saw it uh, when I was in Australia with him and it's, it's a really good class. Uh, so if you ever get the chance to see something like that or to see something at a conference or something, but there's such a steep learning curve for surface bar piercings that it's probably not going to give you very good results if you just try to like wing it on one without at least seeing a few done by a, a piercer with a little bit more experience. So watch a video, take a class, shadow, talk to a mentor, do what you can to get some information first because surface bar piercings are, are no joke. They're a little bit challenging, um, but I, I like a challenge. Um, is there anything that you would do aftercare wise that would be like drastically different from another piercing I don't imagine so no I think the only thing that I do that would be significantly different is um, sometimes I'll bandage a, a surface piercing or a, a surface anchor I'll cover it with a, a, a waterproof bandage just to help to prevent like bumps and snags and, and chemical irritation during the the first few days when the, the piercing is really vulnerable but that's really all I, I kind of have on my mind for, for surface piercings. Do you want to maybe do a quick recap of like some of the terminology? Like when you say punch and taper, punch and needle, wound shaping, d does that come across in audio or do you think that that's something that people would need to see visually? 
Well, so beginning at the beginning, when I say clamp and cannula, I mean you take a clamp, big old sponge clamp, clamp up a bunch of skin and you pierce it from point A to point B with a cannula needle and that's it. And that was my, my starting point introduction to the to the subject, you know, years and years ago. And then from that, that progressed into trying punch and taper because at that point I was already doing surface anchors or dermal anchors. I was, so I was already using a biopsy punch or um, an O-needle for those that use O-needles. So I was already familiar with that. And then uh, another piercer at that time who was from Canada originally, I'm sure, um, had said, you know, you can you can make these two holes and you can just connect them with a taper. And I was like, well, how does that how does that work? So that's why I was saying that it was completely bananas. This idea that you could just put a taper and the skin would just separate that easily. That was really strange. But I gave it a try. I thought worst case scenario, I'll clamp it and pierce it. But it worked and it worked uh, very well. And I did piercing that way for several years. And then I saw uh, Luis Garcia's um, wound shaping surface piercing class, which was to me, it looked like magic. It looked like how you can control with the skin, how you can get that level of control and also make it look so painless and so seamless. I would be expecting it to be a big bloody mess. Um, so I tried that. Um, I found that it worked really well. The, the result looked identical to what I'd been doing with punch and taper. So I tried that for a while. And then I think it was a couple of years later, I tried um, punch and needle um, and it, I didn't really prefer it or, or not prefer it to, to punch and taper or to wound shaping. So those are some of the kind of different techniques that I went through in terms of trying out different things. And I talked about this a little bit in my Size Matters class, that experimentation takes sh or should take a long time. It shouldn't just be the case of I've done this thing now, I know how to do this thing and I'll be doing all things this way from here on forward. You know, like it, it does take time. You're talking six months, 12 months, two years of trying something out and really starting to see what the feedback is. So going through all of that, I do wound shaping now primarily, or at least I did when I was doing surface piercings because I just find it very easy and, and very comfortable. But I think I still really like punch and taper piercing. Yeah, uh, I've, I've been fortunate enough to, I, I've seen other people offer like all those different varieties. I've been able to try all those different varieties myself. Um, my my first experiences with surface piercings were also clamped and I would really try to urge people to move away from that because if you're clamping you're distorting the tissue quite a bit and yes you might be able to get in a surface bar but it might not be sitting as flat as you would like it to maybe the tissue is a little bit bunched up sometimes you have to kind of gather an artificial uh, extra amount of tissue into the path of the the piercing to kind of counteract the clamps making it distorted or maybe a little too superficial. So I would say if you are looking to start with surface piercings um, from square one, or if you're not getting good results and you're using clamps, try to think about that whole concept of punch and taper, punch and needle, wound shaping, like what has kind of, what came after clamps? Try to look at that for, for success. If you're in an area where it's not illegal, to use a small biopsy punch, you could try like a, a 14 gauge, a 1.5 millimeter biopsy punch, but 
if you're in the US or if you're in another area where it's not legally permissible to use a, a medical device, a dermal punch, you can always get chamfer needles from a, a needle company like Industrial Strength LLC. You can get O needles from a manufacturer like Katana and it's got the same functionality it's that same cylindrical blade and that's what I demonstrate in the video that I just posted um, but you can kind of make the the vertical holes you really want the wound to be the the shape of the surface bar that's where the term wound, wound shaping was really brought into body piercing because the the more that the the hole is shaped like the jewelry the easier time the body will he healing around that, that, that jewelry so you could punch down for the vertical holes and then you could either separate the tissue across or you could pierce across uh, to go from point A to point B so you know both are, are valid schools of thought you know one location versus the other maybe you would have a preference I, I probably wouldn't want to use punch and taper on a nape that tissue can be a little bit more challenging to separate so maybe a punch and a needle there but on the chest something like very thin skinned or very soft skin like it, it is very satisfying tapering and, and separating the tissue. I think that that really came out of the, the BME era where people were already doing a lot of body mod work and that whole concept of separating the tissue, with, you know, that's how you were installing uh, subdermal implants, transdermal implants, you know, tissue separation was a big part of that process. And then the mini version of it kind of transferred over to surface bar piercings. Then I kind of think it, it, it turned into the, the punch and needle method. And then you had people, again, like Luis Garcia, like you can't talk about modern surface piercing without mentioning that name, without right. mentioning Luis Garcia, without mentioning people like Brian Skelly, because they've just done so much work moving that, that entire category of body piercing forward. Like they're just like so instrumental and um, they, they really deserve the, a lot of the credit for that. But you know, the whole wound shaping method, I would say it's very challenging, but also very satisfying when you nail it. Uh, I was fortunate enough, actually, about two weeks ago, I did a nape with a wound shaping method, and I got to take some nice video of that, so I can make a video for that in the future also. But a lot of methods out there, and think about what would maybe give you the best success rate or what would be maybe an attainable goal for you, you know, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your career. Well, I think that this will be the place where we put a pin in it. Um, thank you for listening. I know that we rambled quite a bit. It's one of those things where it's impossible to really talk about the entire subject without visual aids and, and things like that. But I like listening to you talk about what you did before. Sometimes I really do like those cringy moments where we look back on what we were doing when we were baby piercers. I, I love those cringy moments. I know that you say sometimes or people say sometimes that it's being, you know, negative or doer or whatever you want to call it. I love that stuff because I don't think... I think in the quest for everybody to look absolutely perfect, nobody likes to talk about it and certainly nobody likes to laugh about it, but they're some of the most educational moments in my career sure. that I've learned a lot from. And even if I don't still work that way, there are things that I learned and principles that I learned and things that I understand now about the mechanics of body piercing that I learned going through that process. It's learned information for me now. It's not just information that I've heard somebody else parrot. It's things that I've, I've seen and been through. So like, I love that stuff. You yeah. know, like all of those little moments that kind of culminate together in your mind when you look back on them and you don't realize at the time that 10 years later, 15 years later, however long for you, 25 years later, um, you'd be like, oh, I remember the time I was, you know, trying to bend 
PTFE or nylon with with hot water and then like make it cold again to try and freeze the shape, you know. But and I, I had one of those um, PTFE pencil sharpeners. It was like a little sharpener that you would uh, put screw onto the end of a PTFE shaft oh, yeah, to, to make it. A, to make a thread. I still have one of those in my shop somewhere. Yeah, and hip piercings. Oh my god, hip piercings. Oh, They're... we didn't even talk about Tygon. Ugh, make just make. I'm just let's not bring back hip piercings, yeah. please. Or Tygon. Uh-huh. Uh, well, okay. So thank you for listening. Um, if you're interested in learning more about surface piercing, as I said, seek out that information. Seek out the people who have experience with it because I think um, pretty soon it's going to be a lost art form. So take classes when you can. Shadow when you can. Uh, if you want to check out my video, it's available at patreon.com slash ryanpba along with a boatload of other information. And uh, we'll be back with another episode soon. Is there anything else you want to say for people? No. Okay. Well, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. For more information about the show, visit piercingwizardpodcast.com or like Piercing Wizard Podcast on Facebook. For more info about your host, visit precisionbodyarts.com or search Ryan PBA on Facebook, Instagram, and Tumblr. If you enjoy the show, you can subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcast, and Google Play. Music by Benny B. Blanco. Show copyright 2017, Precision Body Arts, LLC. All rights reserved. Bop, 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 Say something. Say like normal volume stuff. Say words, not just jazz. Um, hello.